Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Middle Eastern Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Aaron Hagler from Troy University. Today, I spoke with Professor Jeremy Pressman, Associate Professor of Political Science and the Director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut. Jeremy is the author of The Sword is Not Enough, Arabs, Israelis, and the Limits of Military Force, an exploration of the dominance of military force as the go-to option for political and social leaders on both sides of the Arab-Israeli conflict. In our discussion, Jeremy and I discuss why violence is the default preference among some actors, not just in the Arab-Israeli conflict, but in the realm of international relations around the world. We talk about what can and cannot be achieved by violence, and also discuss why violence will never provide a resolution to the conflict. We also discuss the ideologically airtight explanations upon which each side can draw that can convince people that the other side can never be trusted, and some of the steps that leaders can take to counteract this dangerous fear. The Sword is Not Enough is published by Manchester University Press in 2020. Now to our topic. Welcome, Jeremy, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, So your book, The Sword is Not Enough, Arabs, Israelis, and the Limits of Military Force, uh, engages with the Israel-Palestine conflict in a way that is unlike a lot of other takes that I've read. Instead of zooming out, kind of putting the conflict into some kind of grand historical perspective or uh, emphasizing the specific issues that make a peaceful and just resolution to the conflict so elusive, you zoom in on the specific governmental or leadership policy tactic of violence and demonstrate how that um, that myopia, that lack of political creativity, may do more to perpetuate the conflict than anything else. But uh, before we get into the book, I'd like to take the opportunity, if that's okay, both for myself and our listeners, to get to know you a little better. Uh, can you say something about your journey and uh, where you are today, how you got here? Sure. Thanks. And thanks again for having me. Really, really a pleasure to be here and, and to talk about the book. Um, I guess as background, I just start by saying, you know, I, I grew up in the United States. And um, the first time I went to Israel and the West Bank and actually the Golan Heights, too, was in 1986. Um, I was on a, a teen tour. And, um, on, you know, on that first trip, I was there for six weeks and there was some mention of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And of course, some places we visited had particular historical resonance, but it certainly wasn't the dominant theme of the trip. And I would say it was, you know, it was before the outbreak of the first Palestinian uprising to, you know, the year before the, the first Intifada. Um, and so maybe there was even a sense that things could kind of go at that, um, at that, that status quo could live on for a while. Um, a few years later, when I was in college, um, I spent my junior year in Jerusalem. I, I spent a year at uh, Hebrew University in 1989, 90. Uh, um, and, uh, at that point, the first intifada, the uprising, was uh, fully underway. And I guess what struck me thinking back on that period now, I guess, th- you know, 30 years ago, was how the conflict was more apparent. Maybe it was more apparent because um, the uprising was going on, and so it was more apparent in reality. 
or maybe it was also more apparent because I was sort of more attuned to it as a as a college student who had started to study um, political science and international relations as as, as one of my uh, concentrations. And you know, when I say that the the conflict was more apparent, I, I mean that in kind of the very concrete interactions that I had and and and, and conversations I had with people, and just you know. Uh, a few examples that kind of um, come to mind. I remember, as I said, it was during the first Intifada, and I remember um, living in the dorm that year, and one of my hallmates, who was um, an Israeli Jew recently off his army service, telling me about, in fact, breaking the bones of Palestinian protesters, because that was a way to deter them and really prevent them from coming back uh, into the protests against the Israeli occupation. Or um, I remember, and I, I talk about this in an article I wrote uh, about stone throwing, um, which is one one of the common Palestinian tactics during that first uprising. Um, I remember riding a bus from um, from Mount Scopus, where Hebrew University was and is located, uh, into the center of, of uh, Jerusalem, heading to West Jerusalem, in fact, and uh, being on a bus that was hit by stone throwers and remembering very vividly the reactions of the few other passengers, uh, the reaction of the bus driver. And I guess you could say in typical Israeli fashion, when the bus driver um, reached where an Israeli army patrol was located, he opened his door and got in an argument with them about how they hadn't properly uh, protected him from the <laughs> stone throwers in that case um, uh, as well. Or um, maybe even as vivid as that, um, thinking about an opportunity I had or a, a, a moment I had to visit an Israeli settlement over the Sabbath. Um, it was the Israeli settlement of Kirat Arba, which is a pretty large settlement that's located out right outside on the outskirts of Hebron in the southern part of the uh, West Bank. I was there because um, my grandmother, my late grandmother, knew someone who lived in that settlement. And so they had invited me to, uh, to come visit. And I just, I remember on the Sabbath morning walking down from Kirat Arba, as I said, on the outskirts of Hebron, into um, into the Cave of the Patriarchs, a, a site considered holy by both Jews and Muslims. And um, along the way, again, this is during the Intifada, and this was certainly Hebron, one of the places where a lot of confrontation took place. Um, the, be, the 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 route being lined with um, Israeli soldiers, Israeli soldiers on the route, Israeli soldiers up on uh, rooftops. And so, when when I think back, kind of on this period, um, I think it's this this kind of combination of experiences that start to um, intrigue me and start to suggest to me, hey, there's, there's something going on here, which maybe to your listeners was like, of course, there was something going on here in terms of the confrontation. But but as my studies continued first in, uh, the, you know, as I returned uh, for my senior year after being in Jerusalem, and then uh, later working at a think tank at the Carnegie Endowment, and then my graduate studies at MIT, thinking that there's, there's, there's more to this, um, and I wanted to kind of dive into it. Some of my early academic work was on the high diplomacy of the conflict. I was finishing grad school and starting at the University of Connecticut right uh, right during and after uh, the end of the Oslo process when there were high-level negotiations between Israeli and Palestinian negotiators facilitated by the United States to try and resolve the conflict once and for all. And as we know, they didn't resolve the conflict once and for all. It's ongoing. Uh, as, as we know and as your listeners know. Um, but that was some of my early work. And, and then over the years, coming also back to some of the, the violence, and as I said, even coming back to the, the stone throwing that, that was so um, compelling, or I guess you could say uh, um, 
momentous at that at that moment riding through uh, East Jerusalem for me. So that, that, I guess that gives you a little bit of how I kind of got drawn into this uh, and, and some of the topics that are of interest to me. Sure. You know, that's that's really interesting. I was actually also in Israel in 1986, and I also did uh, a couple of years at at, uh, at Mount Scopus, so I know the places very well. Um, how did you transition from writing about diplomacy to you know, kind of the high diplomacy, like you said, to to this, You're, you you've made this switch, focusing on uh, on military force as opposed to diplomacy. When and how did that switch happen? Uh, getting a little bit into what motivated you to write this book specifically? Yeah, I think that partly that switch, um, I guess you could say, happened whether I wanted it to happen or not. Um, as scholars, we have some leeway to choose the topics that interest us. Obviously, we generally choose the field of study that we're going to pursue in a broad sense, right? Whether we're going to pursue political science or sociology or uh, Islamic studies or whatever the, the case might be. But um, particularly, I guess, in political science, it's also um, a reaction to what's going on in the world around us. And I'm certainly a scholar whose, whose work is very influenced by contemporary events and, and the twists and turns of those events. And so if, as I said, um, I finished my uh, dissertation and, and started my early academic career at a time when um, there was thought that high diplomacy might be a route out of conflict, um, the collapse of that diplomacy um, and the second Palestinian intifada, the second uprising of 2000 to 2005, an uprising that was more violent and more militarized than the first Palestinian uprising uh, that I had mentioned earlier when I was at Hebrew University. Um, so events kind of moved in that direction, that it was the collapse of diplomacy and, and the rise or, or the return or, or, or the, the primacy of the more violent and forceful interactions between the parties. Those never really went away uh, during the Oslo years of the 1990s. There were still forceful, coercive, violent, aggressive interactions. Um, but uh, the diplomacy maybe took center stage for a while. And, and that the receding of the diplomacy, the failure of the Camp David summit in 2000, something I've written about, and the return of the, of, uh, the outbreak, I should say, of the second intifada really, I think, influenced the, that, that trajectory for me. Um, there has, of course, been um, other moments of high diplomacy. It didn't, did that, it's not like 2000 was the last time Israeli and Palestinian negotiators tried to negotiate un, under both uh, U.S. Presidents uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Um, there were moments when they invested significant uh, political capital and, and U.S. resources in trying to either uh, restart diplomacy or hold high-level talks. So it's not that it uh, totally disappeared, um, but the, the violence and, the, and, and also with the violence, the sense of pessimism, the sense that um, these efforts by the Bush and Obama administrations were unlikely to bear fruit or when they tried were really struggling. And that was a lot of the media coverage was about their struggle to get these diplomatic processes going and to really get Israeli and Palestinian leaders seriously interested in those processes. Um, I think that's part of, so, so partly, I guess I'd summarize and say that events moved in a different direction, or if you take a different peace process, the efforts in the 19, late 1990s and 2000 to resolve the dispute between uh, Syria and Israel, there too, right? The, the, there were high level talks in 1999, 2000, and since then, Sporadic attempts, but especially since 2011, when the um, the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, uh, 
the, the idea of Israeli-Syrian diplomacy has taken a back seat, if not been relegated to the, to the dustbin for, of history for a while. So, so I would say first, a, a lot of events have, uh, have changed. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is um, there, there are certain scholarly works that have really piqued my interest. And um, I guess the, the, the most compelling one is um, by the well-known international relations scholar Robert Jervis, who spent a long career at, um, at Columbia University. And his writings from uh, 1976 about two different ways or two different models for international politics, two different ways of thinking or two different models of international politics, the spiral and deterrence model, um, were sort of intellectually inspirational for me to, to, as a way to think about politics. It's not that they're particularly complex ways of thinking about politics, um, but and, and they very much mirror what I talk about in the book, but it's just something I kind of held with me and, and, and kind of kept um, stirring around in my head and eventually started thinking about uh, how is this? How does this relate to the Arab-Israeli conflict, and how might I um, extrapolate or or apply some of the ideas that he's talking about in 1976 as we think in the 21st century about this conflict? Mm-hmm. It sounds as though your research kind of just followed the reality on the ground. Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of. Uh, of truth to that, you might say there were a decreasing number of opportunities to write about high-level diplomacy, and I, maybe I was looking for other uh, other things to, to, to pay attention to. And and certainly the, the reality is that um, if you look across the conflict, and, and I guess this is partly what the book is trying to establish, where I started in the 1990s and the Oslo process, which we, you know, we would usually date from 1993 to 2001, in a way, that ends up being the exception or the aberration in Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian history. It's these periods of violent confrontation that seem to be the more dominant um, way in which the parties interact. Hmm. You know, I, with that said, I just hope that uh, one day you'll write about diplomacy again. Yes, <laughs> I do so, as well. I do as well. So, yeah. Uh, to get into the, the book itself, your fundamental argument is, uh, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, they want to hear this from you, not from me, but uh, as I understand it, your fundamental argument is that there are two modes of advocating or advancing one's national goals, either brute military force, right, wherein an actor literally forces their opponents to acquiesce, uh, or negotiation, which involves mutual compromise. And you also argue uh, that both uh, Israel and um, you know Arab actors, whether it be Arab states or the PA or uh, Palestinian movements, tend to default to violent force as their primary tactic. Now, why do you think the dynamic is so strong in this case? Why do decision makers on both sides tend to think of diplomacy and negotiation as kind of a, a, a wimpy alternative to fighting? Yeah, well, let me just stress one uh, one point um, before I answer your question, which is, uh, although the book is about the Arab-Israeli conflict, I'm not arguing that this is unique to the Arab-Israeli conflict. In fact, I think what what helps me answer your question about why this, um, you know, why this default to, to threatening force and using uh, military force is because this is actually situated in a larger world of international relations in which many countries 
emphasize military force and do it uh, sort of in an exaggerated way and do it in a way that is to the detriment of pursuing negotiations and mutual concessions. So while I'm talking about it in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict and, and often in the context of specifically Israeli-Palestinian relations, um, I would say that there's a lot to be said about this in a much broader sense. And maybe at the end, we can talk about a different example in the United States today about uh, Iran, for instance. But to, mm-hmm. to get to, to get to your question, um, you know, I, why is it that it's this idea is so dominant? Why is it that policymakers and, and politicians are drawn to this idea of when we want to achieve our fundamental national objectives about security and survival and, and advancing those kind of basic goals? Why why are they so drawn to to military force and to, to strength and to and, and to more aggressive activities? And I, in the book, I, I you know I try and look at at least three different explanations or, or justifications for for how they come to that particular. Um, position. The first is um, that the world is the, the world of international politics is a very competitive, dangerous world. Now, this speaks to kind of one of the central theoretical debates in um, international relations, at least in in North American international relations, about whether the world is more, as scholars would call it, realist, and and whether competition is the norm, and and the you know it's a it's a, a brutish world, and 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 countries compete and fight, and that's how they advance their interests, or whether um, in an international sense the world is a more liberal. Uh, a vision, a more liberal internationalist vision, where cooperation is is um, not only possible, but is uh, is also common, and states are looking for mutual benefits and and mutual gains. But the idea that the, that first idea that, that we live in a realist world where competition is the norm, and and the way to get what you want is to throw around your weight and and to fight, and that the, the possibility of fighting is ever present, and therefore you always need to be prepared. That is a common view among policymakers and politicians. I'm not saying that they would call it a realist view, but that sense of, of threat and, and, and the idea that you're going to have to push forward and, and potentially strike others to get what you want is a very common idea. And so that, that's the first thing, is that there's a kind of existing conceptual framework um, that, that fits well with how many uh, leaders and scholars see the see the world. The mm-hmm. sec- yeah, yeah, the second thing is that um, uh, in terms of why this emphasis on, on military force is is that the 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 world of international politics, but also the world of domestic politics, is really messy. It's really um, there's lots of leaders and actors and political parties and government agencies and and there's civil society and non governmental organizations and think tanks and retired officials and diplomats and and military leaders. So there's all these different people involved in any particular international issue. So in my case, there's many different. Um, uh, people and organizations and parties and governments that are involved in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, you might say it's it's a multi-actor environment, um, and and as a result of that, it's very hard for one country to project a, a clear message. And so instead, what you often get in the Arab-Israeli conflict is muddled messages. And so the second thing I suggest is that in an environment in which there's lots of people talking in the public sphere and trying to convey their message about what should be done for national security and what should be done vis-a-vis your rivals and, and adversaries, that um, in that environment, the default is more towards defending yourself, protecting yourself, um, 
being aggressive when you need to, and and the, the messages that are more conciliatory get lost in that. In other words, if we imagine um, a situation in which, I'm just making this up, but let's imagine a situation in which there's uh, 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 two conciliatory messages I'm trying to send to you, Ari, and, 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 mm-hmm. but, but someone else is standing next to me sending an aggressive, hostile message, um, that it's going to be very hard for you to hear those, um, those, those more altruistic, those more cooperative, conciliatory messages from me, when because you, you're also buzzing in your ear, is that person next to me, who's also part of my side in some general sense, they're from the same country as me, uh, it's very difficult to, to kind of tune out what they're saying. And so as a default, you might say, hey, I'd love to listen to those nice messages, that sweet talk that Jeremy's talking, but I can't ignore the fact that someone right next to him is telling me more aggressive, dangerous things. I, I would be a fool. I, I would jeopardize the security of my country if I didn't also pay attention to that person. So the, the I guess it's not only that the messages are muddled, but that when the messages are muddled, the default is going to be more towards um, worrying about the more aggressive, uh, forceful messages. Because if you make a mistake on those, and this speaks to the first point as well, it's hard to come back from that, right? If, if I listen too much, if, if you, sorry, if you listen too much to Jeremy's sweet talk, and it turns out that what's really going on is that aggressive party really understands the truth of what of what Jeremy's country wants, then it's going to be more uh, complicated. And then just quickly, the, the last one is just, um, there's been, a, I would say, a turn in international relations to pay more attention to emotions and how emotions affect um, uh, international behavior, and so the the third thing I guess I, I wanted to emphasize a bit is is the role that the emotion of fear plays, and and that scholarly research among not just political scientists but often more so among political psychologists and and in the psychology discipline the role that fear plays in reinforcing this preference for for military force for threatening and using military force. In other words, that when people are fearful of the other side, when Israelis are fearful of of Egyptians or Palestinians, when Palestinians are fearful of Israelis, when Egyptians are fearful of Israelis, what's more likely, the kinds of policies that are going to get emphasized are, are the more aggressive, strength-oriented policies, the, the coercion, the armed struggle, the deterrence, rather than um, more conciliatory policies. And so I don't go deep into emotions in the book, but I at least suggest that emotions are also playing a role here in terms of affecting the, the, the policy preferences of decision makers. Well, you do talk about something that that I feel like is kind of in the realm of emotions when you're talking about the high stakes of things. So what what I mean is you're you're very careful to avoid making your analysis some kind of like pacifist manifesto. The the fact is that violence sometimes does achieve limited objectives in in Palestine and in Israel and, and as you say, everywhere else. Uh, but you argue uh, really convincingly against any kind of uh, maximalist approach to violence, that military force simply cannot be the solution for either side in this case, because the stakes for the other side are literally national survival. So so put another way, um, if military victory is truly to translate into a political victory for either side, I mean, there's no incentive for the other side to stop fighting, even in the face of sure defeat. So can you talk about how that dynamic is demonstrated by post-1948 history? Because I feel like that question of if the stakes are that high, um, that's, that's part of the perpetuation of that, of that strategy. Yeah, well, let's. I think to start, I'd say let's imagine that there's a spectrum, and on one extreme is a total commitment in terms of your policy to military force, and on the other uh, end is a total commitment to uh, negotiations and mutual concessions and, and diplomacy. Um, what I'm trying to argue in this book is not that 
we sh- as you suggest, is not that we should sit at one end of that spectrum or that policymakers should think of themselves at one end of that spectrum. And, and as you said, I, it's not that I'm endorsing the idea that the only way forward all the time is negotiations and concessions and diplomacy. But the way I think about it is that the debate right now and, and, and the way in which policymakers and the general public in, in many countries as well thinks about this is very much towards the military force end of the spectrum. So to the extent that you could think of the book as kind of a corrective, it's trying to pull people a bit back towards the middle. Uh, again, I'm not trying to say, oh, it all has to be 50-50, but it, but, mm-hmm. but, the, but it leans so far in terms of how key decision makers think. It leans so far towards military force that I think there's some sense of, 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 of overcommitment to military force, and it's, and it's more of a corrective. So as you say, uh, chapter two of the book is about those moments when when uh, military force has been um, uh, um, a, a major conceptually has been embraced by the different parties. And I talk in that book both about uh, the Palestinian side and, and the PLO charter and, and the charter of Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, the other major um, uh, Palestinian actor or, or organization. And and at the same time, talk about some Israeli documents that suggest that commitment to military force like the, the Iron Wall. And there are those historical moments when, you know, for Israelis to look at the 1967 war, I think that the, it's not uh, surprising that the lesson that, you, that, that Israeli Jews might draw is about the success of uh, of military force, or Palestinians might look at the first Palestinian uprising from 1987 to 1993 and say, "We used, we pressured Israel. We we stood strong. We used some uh, military force, light light military force, but things like uh, stone throwing. And the result was that uh, it affected the Israeli political system, and Israel moved as a whole slightly to the left in the 1992 election, opening the door to the Oslo process. So absolutely, there are moments when uh, the parties can point to historical." Uh, examples of where military force works. My concern, though, is that is is that leaning too far to one end of the spectrum, and and I guess um, in the book what I try and suggest is that there's three um, negative results or three shortcomings that you can see from this overemphasis on threatening and using uh, military force. Uh, the first of those is that. Um, you can't actually sign a peace treaty through military force. At the end of the day, a peace treaty, which is what um, closes down uh, the kinds of military conflicts that are going on, a peace treaty is, is, can only come about as a result of, um, of negotiations. And it would be very unusual for a peace treaty uh, to not involve mutual concessions. Those concessions aren't necessarily symmetric, right? One party may make more concessions or more significant concessions, but it would be very unusual for a peace treaty not to involve uh, those kind of concessions. And I'll talk about an exception to that in a a second. So that's one shortcoming that I point to. Um, A second shortcoming is is missed diplomatic opportunities, that when you have this forceful mindset that – you're not going to see or you're not going to value those moments that might be the diplomatic off-ramps from the conflict. You're going to instead tend to see those as as, uh, tricks or aberrations or uh, just too risky to take advantage of. And so you're going to miss diplomatic opportunities that might otherwise lead to um, a more stable situation and the ability to achieve those kind of fundamental objectives of security. And then lastly, and I think this is most, you know, sort of specific to your question and something I cover in in chapter four of the book, is that this emphasis on military force often backfires, 
right? And and or maybe you could say that force can often lead to greater insecurity. And this is one of the the kind of the underlying, I think, broad themes of the book. Not just that force can backfire and 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 lead to greater insecurity, but to think about the the sort of the unintended consequences of policies. Many policies have unintended consequences. I guess in this book, uh, a lot of what I emphasize are the unintended consequences of military force, of, of threatening and using military force, and how it states often have plans, obviously, about how they want things to work out and the objectives they're going to try to achieve when getting involved in a, in a military confrontation. But the reality is, oftentimes, it doesn't work out that way. And in fact, not only does it often not work out that way, often it worsens the situation rather than making it better. Hmm. Can, you, can you give some examples of that? I know that uh, uh, one of the things that I talk about uh, when I teach the class is that a lot of times military victories in the Middle East turn into political defeats. Yeah, so um, I, I think there's a, there's a number of examples I, I use in the um, in the book. Uh, I'll just quickly say that the, the 1973 war, um, uh, in particular between Israel, Egypt, and Syria, turns into is a nice example of that where Israel by the end of the war Israel not only has has defended all the positions it held post 1967 but actually uh, improved slightly in terms of territorial conquest uh, on the Golan Heights in in uh, in the north versus Syria but from a political and psychological perspective the war is clearly a victory for for Egypt and Egypt uses that as a as a kind of uh, launching pad for further initiatives so I think it's a it's a straightforward example of where the the military victory and and the political victor or psychological victor are not the same. But the the example I think that that really strongly or another example that really strongly illustrates this dynamic of where uh, military force backfires and and the unintended consequences of military force can sometimes worsen the situation is the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And um, uh, in 1982, Israel's major... um, uh, problem was not with the central government of Lebanon, but it was the fact that the Palestine Liberation Organization in in the early 1980s was based in Lebanon. And so at the time, the way um, would often talk about it was uh, that the PLO had a state within a state. Yes, there was a central Lebanese government, but as we know, Lebanon is often described as a, as a weak central government or weak political system. And the PLO was using Lebanon as a base of operations, as a political base of operations, but also as a base of operations for long attacks against uh, against Israel. And so in terms of thinking about the specific objectives that Israel wanted to pursue in order to um, improve Israel's national security, uh, Israeli leaders, in particular the Israeli defense minister, Ariel Sharon, who's quite a uh, quite an important figure in Israeli history and later becomes uh, Israel's prime minister, but um, wanted to force the PLO out of Lebanon, right? Wanted to end the idea of Lebanon serving as um the PLO's main headquarters and base of operations. Um, the implication of that is if you can crush the PLO, maybe you can also end the Palestinian quest for national self-determination. I don't think logically in terms of how we understand self-determination movements, that makes sense. But I think that was kind of the underlying uh, hope was that by crushing the PLO and forcing them out of Lebanon, you'd also do grave damage to the Palestinian quest for, for national self-determination uh, in the Holy Land. And, and that was one thing. And the second objective that was also supposed to advance Israel's national security was to sign a treaty between Israel and the central government of Lebanon. Um, Israel had long felt that um, Christian Lebanese were more sympathetic to Israel uh, as opposed to uh, various groups of Muslim Lebanese. And so uh, 
Israel thought, well, maybe we can sign uh, what at that point would have been the second peace treaty between Israel and Arab country just a, f- a few years after the 1979 Egyptian-Israeli treaty. And so with these two security objectives, Israel in June 1982 invaded, uh, invaded Lebanon. And I think we see clear examples of the unintended consequences and the way it backfires. At first, it looks really good. The PLO is, from Israel's security perspective, the PLO was forced out of Lebanon. Uh, There was an agreement where not only the PLO headquarters were closed down, but thousands and thousands of PLO militants were forced to leave uh, Lebanon. And even better from an Israeli perspective, where do they go? The PLO headquarters moves to Tunisia, right? Distant mm-hmm. Tunisia, way on the other end, as, again, as your listeners know, way on the other end of, of North Africa. So for the, f- for the first time uh, since the 1967 war, the PLO is not based in a state neighboring on Israel that gives a great launching pad for attacks on Israel, but is based in distant Tunisia. And so I- initially it might be thought, or Israel could think, wow, we really, we forced the PLO out, great advance for our national security. And secondly, Israel does sign a treaty with Lebanon. But what, what, changes is both what happens with that treaty and also um, some of the other things that that follow. So first of all, uh, by 1983-84, the Lebanese government has decided, in in part under pressure from Syria and others, that a treaty with Israel is a very bad idea, and they abrogate the treaty, they end the treaty with Israel, so Israel doesn't get the treaty. But then, um, secondly, we see the rise of a different militant actor, a different uh, group that is opposed to Israel and is willing to fight Israel, and that's Hezbollah, the the Lebanon's Party of God, which really, which is really comes out of the Shiite Lebanese community and um, becomes a major opponent of Israel to this day, and and arguably um, one of the one or two most threatening entities to Israel today um, is Hezbollah, aligned with uh, with the government of Iran. Uh, tens of thousands of rockets and missiles Hezbollah now has based in 2020 in uh, in Lebanon. So we. See see, yes, Israel gets rid of the PLO, but in some ways they, 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 we see the creation of an even worse actor whose mission is to, to fight Israel and to push Israel out of uh, Lebanon. Secondly, though, we also, just a few years later, have the 1987 outbreak of the First Intifada. So uh, whereas Israel might have thought, wow, we've forced the PLO to Tunisia and we've weakened the quest for Palestinian self-determination. We've weakened Palestinian nationalism. Instead, what seems to happen is Palestinians on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza say, wow, the PLO is really distant now. We have to take matters into our own hands. We can't rely on the distant PLO to uh, to push for our independence and to end the Israeli occupation that started in, in 1967. Uh, we have to take matters into our own hands, and maybe that's part of why in December 1987 we see the outbreak of the first intifada, which of course takes place in, in the West Bank and Gaza. And I won't go into all the details, but in the book I also talk about a third excuse me, reason why it's um, challenging for uh, Israel's security. And that's that the, the, the 1982 war actually emboldens Syria for the next few years, um, leading to a strong Syrian-Hezbollah alliance um, and, and leading to at least initially a Syrian push for, for strategic military parity with Israel, right? Buying more Soviet weapons in the early and mid-1980s to try and uh, equalize with Israel. So on a number of, of uh, dimensions, the war not only doesn't work out like uh, Israeli strategic thinkers, or at least the defense minister, thought it would, but there's some really uh, intense negative security consequences for Israel that Israel is dealing with to this day, almost uh, almost 40 years later. So it seems like what we've got in this conflict is a, in this series of conflicts, I guess, is a real catch-22, where you don't have the political will or the political ability to engage in anything other than violence, uh, or, or so you think, if you're a leader, I guess. 
but on the other side, uh, when you engage in violence, all you do, you don't strengthen your own position, you strengthen the other side's position. You might strengthen your immediate position, but at great long-term cost. So um, in terms of Israeli thinking, uh, one of the elements you point to that has led to this uh, kind of protracted stalemate, I guess, that we're seeing is uh, the influential perspective of this guy, Yehoshaphat Harkabi, uh, that, that apparent shifts in Arab tactics after 1967 uh, were not indicative of a shift of, in overall Arab goals, that they had uh, evolved their strategy from wholesale immediate destruction of Israel to a more piecemeal, gradual, uh, but still total destruction of Israel as a state. And uh, you talk about how this thinking influenced Israeli leaders like Menachem Begin, like Ariel Sharon, and many others. Uh, what, if anything, did Harkabi get wrong? Yeah, I think I think it's a good, uh, it's a really good question. So, the the danger I think in these situations is creating a non falsifiable worldview, right? And 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 I think that's what that's what emanates from Harkabi is that, that no matter what the Arab parties did, you could come to the same conclusion that they were bent on Israel's destruction. Now, if they're publicly saying we want to destroy Israel, I think it's logical logical to conclude that that's a distinct possibility that they want to destroy Israel. And so that's not the surprising part of it. But what makes it really difficult to falsify is that uh, he was also saying that when it looks like they're saying, let's pursue a diplomatic track, let's sit down at the negotiating table, or at least let's work through some kind of intermediary or mediator, that that you also view that as a different pathway towards their, their desire to destroy Israel. Uh, salami tactics, right? They're going to take Israel slice by slice. And so you get in a situation where it, it becomes non-falsifiable. No, no matter what policy a particular Arab party, Egypt or the PLO or, or a different Arab party pursues, um, you have an explanation for why they're still bent on your destruction. You've left yourself no wiggle room. You've left yourself no ability to at least test or probe um, potentially uh, promising diplomatic opportunities or even even ambiguous diplomatic opportunities. Even if they're not potentially promising, you've kind of left yourself no argument or no conceptual framework in which to try and think about how you could change that that forceful dynamic, how to change the um the, the status quo. And so I think what it, it's like, in a way, the, the, the flaw is that you've come to the conclusion, you've come to the conclusion that the Arab world will never accept Israel, right? And then you're kind of backfilling how, your explanation of any particular policy from, from an Arab actor to explain how it all leads to that same outcome. And maybe it's it's that, that danger of working backwards from the outcome rather than uh, starting with the empirical evidence and trying to decide, well, what, and, and, and obviously, you know, Israel's uh, um, strong intelligence capabilities and sort of seeing, you know, we have all this evidence. How should we sift this evidence? What is it, what is it, what does it lead to us? So it's, it's maybe it's, it's kind of an overcommitment to, to where things are headed. Mm-hmm. Um, you, of course, you get the same thing on the other side, though. Like uh, you mentioned uh, some Palestinians like Haider Abdel Shafi. Uh, arguing that Israeli engagement in the Oslo process was in bad faith and designed to give uh, diplomatic cover to the Israeli enterprise of extirpating Palestinian identity. And and Hamas has even leveled the criticism at the Palestinian Authority. By engaging with Israel, the PA was providing Israel diplomatic cover. Uh, would you say, are they wrong? Is that the same dynamic? Yeah, I think it's a, it's not, it's a very similar dynamic. I mean, exactly how the argument plays out may not be exactly the same, but I think it results in a, in a similar dynamic where 
the forceful interactions, obviously you're going to not like it when your adversary uses military force against you or threatens it, but it, but it also colors how you view the, the diplomatic opportunities, that you view them also as dangerous and threatening. And, and um, in a way, maybe, maybe the apt phrase is, it, it's a Trojan horse, right? It's a trick uh, at the end of the day, even though it may look promising and, and it may look like an olive branch. It's not. It's actually really... Um, really threatening. And so, yes, I mean, I think one thing that I'm trying to argue in this book is not that the sides are exactly the same, because in particular, the power balance and the power dynamic is quite different, depending on which parties we're talking about. The most obvious one being that Israel is a very powerful, wealthy nuclear armed state, and the Palestinians are uh, uh, relatively poor, obviously not nuclear armed and not a state right now. So it's not that the power balance and the, the, the actual capabilities that the parties to this conflict have are equal. Those, those are often quite unequal. But it's, the, it's some of the conceptual ways in which they understand what their adversary is doing and how they interpret their adversary's policies that, that um, often I think we see those kinds of similarities that, that you and I have described in the last few minutes. Yeah, it's, uh, this is the theater of the conflict that takes place inside of everybody's heads as opposed to on the battlefield. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, uh, big question. Uh, how can this paradigm change? Easy one. Yeah, easy, <laughs> an easy question. Um, you know, initially when I, when I wrote this book, um, uh, what is now chapter six wasn't really part of the book. Uh, I, I did what I thought was a good job, and I hope readers will think a good job of detailing uh, these different shortcomings that come with, uh, that come with military force. But... Um, I hadn't thought a lot about why something we did talk about already, which is why that idea tends to get locked in. And also, as you suggest now, what, what, you know, how do you escape this? How is it that it's not just dominant for all, uh, for all time? So first I'd say, um, historically there are two moments that are useful to think about when it seems like the, the, the idea of negotiations and mutual concessions actually has broken through. And, and we've seen some, um, conceptual shifts that, that proved temporary, but, but led to some significant changes and important moments in the conflict. And those, those two moments are the late 1970s when Israel and Egypt negotiated first the Camp David Accords in 1978 with President Jimmy Carter, and then in 1979 when they signed a peace treaty. And then what we've talked about earlier, the Oslo process from 1993 to 2001, when the Israelis and Palestinians tried, ultimately failed, but tried to negotiate a final resolution of their um, of their conflict. And so I think we can think about those moments as we talk about, you know, how might it be that in the future parties could break out of it by looking at how they've in the past maybe broke out of it. And, and let me suggest a few different um, aspects that I think are important to think about in terms of how this might change. Um, there was a time when people would have talked about international relations as all focused on macro structural variables, right? And things beyond the control of any particular leader or decision maker. And I think we've seen a turn, maybe it's a turn back uh, in the last 15, 20 years in international relations towards also accounting for the role of leadership and individuals in, in the particular direction that politics had. And so I think in this case, the role of leaders is was important and would be important again in terms of being willing to take risks, being willing to probe um, these kinds of diplomatic openings to see first whether they in fact are a diplomatic opening and then if they are to, to start to pursue them and to find the right way to bring their public, whatever leader it is of whatever public we're talking about, uh, Palestinian, Egyptian, Syrian, Israeli, uh, whoever it is, to, to, to bring their public along 
uh, in a way so that the public in the end would support this diplomatic opening and any any fruit that it that might bear. But I think leadership is really important. And and I give much credit that the 1970s example is the really easy, late 1970s is the really easy example. Uh, if you think about Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and Jimmy Carter, the President of the United States, um, each of them played a very important role in what resulted in the Israeli-Egyptian treaty. And it hasn't been, as people point out, the warmest of peace, right? It's not that uh, Egyptians and Israeli Jews love each other. Um, but from 1948 to 1973, Israel and Egypt fought five wars. And since the peace treaty in, in uh, 1979, they haven't fought a single war. So I think on the fundamental strategic level, it's made an important change in the uh, conflict. So the first thing that can happen is leadership. Someone could come along or multiple leaders could come along who have a different vision for the future, a different understanding of how to try and uh, get there and are willing to bring both their fellow politicians, their party, and some of the public at least uh, along with them. So that's that's really important. Uh, I think external mediation has played a role. Obviously, there are major failures at certain moments of external mediation and the U.S. track record, for instance, of the last few decades, isn't the last 20 years, isn't great. There's a number of times when the U.S. has tried and, and failed to bring about. It's a hard issue. I'm not. I'm not just blaming the United States. There have been U.S. missteps in that in that process, but um, but but it's a, it's a difficult issue. Uh, Norway played an important role in in 1993 in in the opening that became the Oslo process with Israelis and Palestinians. Again, a process that didn't ultimately succeed, but but Norway facilitated that process. So external mediators um, need to, I think, stir the pot. We see this not just in the Middle East and in the Arab-Israeli conflict, but we certainly see that in many different conflicts, the role that mediators can play in um, giving ideas to the parties for how to try and resolve difficult issues, in providing safe uh, environments for negotiators to secretly or privately meet and, and kind of let down their guard a little bit to explore what the other side is truly willing to accept and not accept. Uh, that was, that's was that been really important in the Arab-Israeli conflict, mediators allowing those, those kinds of moments of, of privacy because you don't usually want to start there are exceptions, but usually negotiators don't want to start by laying all their cards out in public, right? They want to, they obviously want to know a little bit about what the other side is thinking before they lay all their cards on the table. And they want a chance to feel each other out. And mediators can play a really important role in that. And then mediators can also obviously play an important role in supporting agreements that do come about. Uh, countries like the United States, Norway, uh, the European Union as a whole um, have played important roles in providing not just diplomatic support, but also financial support, peacekeepers, uh, etc. to the architecture of how you implement agreement or how third parties can help support an agreement. So I think uh, that's another important factor. There's others, but let me just say um, one other, I'll just mention one more, um, which is the idea, um, Robert Axelrod, a, a, a a well-known political scientist talked about um, tit for tat, the idea of small reciprocal concessions as a way to launch a process. Another way we sometimes hear about this um, coming out of the arms control community is confidence building measures or CBMs. But whatever you call it, um, the possibility, and maybe this is because you get a leader who's willing to do it, but the possibility of, of small test probes. You know, sometimes people look at this conflict and say, Oh, there's no way for Israel and Syria to resolve their dispute. The Golan Heights is so vital to both of them. How could you, how could you ever figure that out? Well, maybe you don't start with the Golan Heights. Maybe you start with smaller ways of trying to test each other. And particularly in the, in the dimension of the Israelis and the Palestinians, that may be uh, an important mechanism where they sort of figure out, how do we get out of this dynamic where we're always relying and, and falling back on military force? 
maybe through small probes and tests to try and see if uh, cooperation can can take off. None of these are foolproof, right? Leaders can lead in a more militant direction, right? External mediators can fall down on the job. Small reciprocal steps can fail or parties can be unwilling to take those small reciprocal steps. So it's not that these are foolproof, but they are some of the pathways, I think, through which we might see a, through which we, we might see a change in the future and which have played an important role in the past. Mm-hmm. And the last four years, I would say, especially the American administration has been decidedly on one side of recording in December of 2020. Um, and, and Joe Biden is set to take office in about a month. Um, do you do you see that as and I'm not asking about a, a political question, but um, do you I guess are you optimistic? Do you are you more optimistic for the future? Uh, than less. You've you've engaged in this uh, very deeply. And so I, I guess I want to know if, if you have hope. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, the position of the, the, I think the Trump administration and what's likely to come from the Biden administration illustrate two different positions that mediators have taken, or, or you could say potential mediators, outside parties, third parties have taken in, in the conflict, or, or maybe just particularly the United States has taken in the conflict. Um, the, the Trump administration has taken the position that Israel, the United States and Israel have a special relationship. Uh, Israel is the U.S. is a very close ally of the United States. And the United States' main responsibility is to protecting Israel's security and survival. And the U.S. should do whatever the Israeli government thinks needs to be done, and maybe even more, in order to ensure Israeli survival. And um, it, that is largely reflective of the particular policies that the, the Trump administration has taken in the last four years. And it does, if you imagine a kind of mutual concessions framework, it, you can see how it doesn't fit that well with a mutual concessions framework. It ends up meaning that the United States expects the Palestinians to make all or most of the concessions because uh, of the, the closeness of the U.S.-Israeli alliance and the, the, the unwillingness to want to put pressure on Israel or to or to make Israel concede anything that, that from the Trump administration's perspective could be dangerous or contrary to uh, Israel's national interest and, and national survival. Um, in contrast, I think what we're likely to probably see from the, the Biden administration is not, um, is not a swing you know, fully towards the Palestinians by any stretch. Um, as a senator and as a vice president, as a presidential candidate, um, President-elect Biden um, feels very warmly to Israel. He has expressed that many times over the years about what he sees as the unbreakable bond between the United States and uh, and Israel. So I don't think it's a, uh, the, in no way is this going to be a rejection of Israel, but it is a willingness to more, um, more regularly engage with the Palestinian side. And I think we'll also see um, the, the possibility at least of a framework that, that um, considers concessions not only from the Palestinians as necessary, but might at least consider some concessions from the Israeli side as necessary. But I want to I put an important caveat on all that, which is um, the backdrop isn't constant, right? History doesn't just sit still or politics don't just sit still. And what might have been possible in 2000 or even 2010 may not be possible in 2020 or, or when uh, when Joe Biden is president in 2021, 2022. And specifically what I mean by that is there are, I think, an increasing number of observers who question whether a two-state solution is still a feasible solution. These are not people, I'm not talking about people who are ideologically opposed to a two-state solution, right? I'm talking about people who assess the kind of logistics and practicality of a two-state solution and question whether it's still possible. There's uh, probably at least 650,000 Israeli Jews now who live in the West Bank including east parts of East Jerusalem. And I think the, the, the real central question is with that many Israelis living 
living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, is it possible to think about most of the West Bank and part of East Jerusalem as functioning as a separate Palestinian state? Probably the most prominent uh, in, in the U.S., the most prominent um, analyst and critic of that idea is Ian Lustig at, at the University of Pennsylvania, who's argued that a two-state solution is no longer possible, that we, we are in the position of a one-state reality, and it's more just a question of what that one state's going to look like and what kind of uh, values are going to be attached to it. So I would say, even if there's some people in the Biden administration who may have an impulse towards jump-starting diplomacy and negotiations that leads towards mutual concessions, the question of whether that, that is even possible on the ground, I think, is an open question in a way that was very different um, in, in 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And so even if there's some desire to move in that direction, there may be some hesitation because, uh, because of the reality on the ground and because the politics in Israel and among uh, the Palestinian uh, political uh, environment are not particularly conducive. There's a lot of pessimism and a, and a, lot, of, um, a lot of concern about the other side as a negotiating partner. So uh, it, may just, it may just not be ripe for trying to move forward in that way. Sure. Uh, well, we are running up against our time limit. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, before we sign off, would you mind sharing with me and the listeners what you're working on now? Sure. Um, well, I have one thing that I guess is is uh, related to this book, and then one thing that's kind of totally different. So maybe I'll mention uh, each of them. Um, uh, we've, we've talked today about the um, peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, which was signed in 1979. What a lot of people don't know, or at least don't focus on, is that that was one of two tracks of negotiations that the Egyptians and Israelis agreed to in 1978-79. They also agreed to a track called the autonomy negotiations, and those autonomy negotiations were to try and deal with the Palestinian issue. The PLO, which was the leader of the Palestinian movement at, the, at that time, did not want to join the negotiations between Egypt and Israel uh, for various reasons, which uh, we don't have time to get into. But um, So Egypt kind of said, well, we'll stand in for the Palestinians and negotiate with you about the future of the, the Palestinian national movement. And um, hopefully uh, when, they, when this process starts to move forward, the Palestinians, the PLO will join and maybe the country of Jordan will join uh, as well. And so... There hasn't been a lot of scholarly attention to the autonomy talks. There's been more in, in recent years. Um, but some of those uh, scholars like um, Seth Ansiska and, and Jorgen Jensehaugen have, have more argued that um, – have been skeptical that the autonomy talks could have led to any kind of resolution. They think it was more of a, a facade. And so um, through a, a, a historical archival approach – um, I'm working on the que that question, and I think I'm, I'm more coming out on the side that it wasn't a sure shot, but that there were possibilities for how those negotiations could have led to a uh, positive resolution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Maybe not likely, but at least the door was, was slightly ajar. So that's one thing that I think sits uh, comfortably with uh, studying the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, and maybe, as we talked about early on, brings me a little bit back to diplomacy, although it's diplomacy from uh, 40 years ago. And then um, the other thing is just something that happened by accident, which is um, uh, in the last four years under the Trump administration, there's been a huge growth of protests in the United States. And uh, I was just curious about who was counting those protests. Um, and, and I don't – protests uh, for President Trump, protests against President Trump, protests that had nothing to do with national politics, right? People who were protesting that their principal got fired or that they were in Connecticut there were protests that people were upset about a shoddy builder who used poor concrete in their foundations. Anyway, protests happened in the United States for a range of different issues. And uh, by accident in early 2017, I, along with uh, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, uh, who's at, at the Harvard Kennedy School, 
school, uh, we got involved in counting protests, how many were happening in the United States and, um, and what size they were and, and, and making this public information at our website, crowdcounting.org. And so Eric and I co-direct the, the Crowd Counting Consortium and that's what we do for, for four years and we're going to be continuing under the new president as well, tallying what protests are going on, where, uh, what kind of uh, characteristics are associated with each particular uh, protest, mostly on news reports, but also using other sources of uh, information. And so from that, um, I'm now working with uh, Alana Devin on a, a new piece which is about um, this past summer. Uh, as everyone knows, there were large protests across the United States over uh, uh, anti-racism protests, Black Lives Matters, and counter-protests. Um, so our focus actually is not on those particular protests in this specific paper, but um, those protests then spread uh, around the world. And so we're interested in the question of how and why those protests spread to, um, by our count, at least 90 other uh, countries and territories around the world. And whether those were protests were similar to what was going on in the United States, or whether they started to take on, or how they started to take on a more local flavor and, and particular local issues. So something pretty different from this book, but that flows out of my more recent work on, on protests and, and social movements in the United States. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Excellent. Thanks so much. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your work with us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care. You too.